I was drawn to emotional intelligence in a big way. You know, when the book Emotional Intelligence 2.0 came out, that was also a light that went on for me. You know, leaders need to start leading a little differently. The days of command and control in corporate America, the days of stick and carrot are over. And we've got to find better and different ways to inspire people we lead. I started to observe that, you know, there were leaders that people willingly followed and they were great. And their direct reports and their span of control saw something in them as a human, not just as someone with a lot of knowledge. And then there were leaders who were just followed because they had control over promotability or compensation. And I never wanted to be that leader. And I know uh, it's the same with you, Jeff. You never want to be that person. In a corporate world where all employees have great leaders with no egos that create fun cultures where people can do their best work, the employees and companies thrive while doing great things for the customers, themselves, and each other. Well, we know that rarely happens. I'm Jeff Palaccio. I have been a leader for over 40 years for every t-shirt size company from small 16 employees to extra large over 1 million. Please join me while I interview outstanding leaders that will share stories of great leadership and not so great. It will help you become a better leader while poking fun at all the crazy shit that happens in corporate America. Hi. I'm Joe Deshawn, and welcome to The Corporate Couch with Jeff Palaccio. Today, Jeff is interviewing Mike Allison. Mike is the Vice President of Talent and Culture at Spotlight, where his focus is on talent acquisition, employee growth and engagement, and leadership development. Spotlight was recently named one of Kansas City's best places to work for in both Ingram's Magazine and the Kansas City Business Journal. Mike is also an adjunct professor and Block Executive Education instructor within the Block School of the University of Missouri in Kansas City. Prior to his role at Spotlight, Mike enjoyed over 22 years of healthcare IT leadership experience working at Cerner. He also spent a year as the Vice President of Learning and Development at AMC Theaters and was involved in city management for three years working as a management analyst for the city of Kansas City, Missouri. He earned a bachelor's degree in international relations and a master's degree in public administration from Brigham Young University. Let's listen as Jeff talks to Mike. Mike, welcome to the corporate couch this morning. Thank you, appreciate it, Jeff. Yeah, so you're, you're, you look like you're in a beautiful home hotel room. Uh, uh, where are you at today? I am in Bethesda, Maryland, uh, and I am combining a, a little bit of a work trip, uh, but mostly a visit with my daughter who moved out to Virginia about three months ago. So we're going to spend some time together this weekend. Very nice. You're, you're my second interview on the podcast. Uh, Joe Goldberg, who I've yet to publish yet, but he, he was in Cleveland. The uh, Royals were playing the Guardians. So his hotel room, at least the background, looked a little better than yours. I'm just going to say. Well, what can I say? I, I at least made the bed for you this morning in the back. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah. Appreciate that. So we were introduced by uh, Kansas City uh, pillar of the community, Andre Davis. So that that was a great introduction. We've um, met for coffee. So I've never asked this question to any guests on the podcast, but who, who do you think could bench press more, myself or Andre? <laughs> oh, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna pick Andre on that one. I, I'm sorry to say. Yeah, that's yeah. a good that's a good call. Uh, <laughs> and 
And I believe he's, I believe he's younger than both of us. So he's got, yes, he's, yes. Yeah. He told me his secret is he buys a a size or two smaller shirt. So he looks bigger. (laughs) And that's the the medium. Yeah. The medium. There you go. (laughs) So, uh, you know, we've got accustomed to zoom, uh, you know, because of the pandemic, uh, any crazy attire you've seen on a professional uh, zoom call or lack of attire, Mike? Ooh, Ooh, well, there's a story now, isn't it? Oh, I suppose everybody has their story. I, I was uh, on a Zoom call that, since you mentioned it during the height of the pandemic and talking to a colleague and her teenage son uh, was behind her and had gotten out of the shower and was parading behind her. There were several people on the call, so it wasn't just me. And people were frantically texting, uh, you know, her high schooler was behind her parading around after he just got out of the shower. So you know, that, that, that's lack of attire, but, uh, yeah, yeah I mean, you, you know, I, I've seen people wearing pajamas, I suppose on a zoom call before as well. Nice. SpongeBob or just, uh, no, no, none of the sponge, <laughs> no SpongeBob pajamas or anything like that. No. <laughs> so, uh, growing up, uh, in San Francisco, the Bay area, uh, what, yeah. what do you love doing as a, as a child? Ooh, uh, yeah, I, I loved growing I spent 25 good years in San Francisco, born and raised, and I really did love the Bay Area. Uh, I, I suppose I'm an outdoor guy a bit, so I, I did love, you know, take full advantage. The beautiful part about the Bay Area, you have beaches, you have mountains that are not that far away. Of course, you have beautiful architecture, you have wonderful food, amazing parks, trails, bike trails, hiking trails. I was a sports kid, too, uh, like a lot of kids growing up in the Bay Area. You know, I gravitated to the the local sports teams, the Warriors, the 49ers, certainly the Giants as well. They're just a few minutes from Candlestick Park, where the Giants played for many years. Uh, so enjoyed doing a lot of sports, but really exploring all the Bay Area had to offer, you know, whether it was going into San Francisco proper, and I, I mostly lived in a suburb called San Bruno, or cruising the coastline. There's really something to do differently almost every day growing up if you wanted to uh, in the Bay Area. So, uh, yeah, great experience and, and uh, was was grateful to grow up there and, uh, as a part of a good family and uh, started my college experience there as well. So all good. Did you uh, have any aspirations as a kid growing up? Like when I grow up, I'm going to be this. What, what was your this? Ooh. You had one. Uh, well, we were talking before the podcast started. You know, I started in journalism and I really did dream you know children have dreams I was, I was a bit of an athlete too I, I ran track in college for a couple of years so for a while you know you have to dream maybe I'll, I'll be in the Olympics and I ran the 400 meter hurdles and, and maybe I'll run the hurdles but then I started thinking about as a teenager hey maybe I maybe I could be a journalist and I, and I loved reading the sports columnist in the San Francisco Chronicle and the Examiner and uh, you know the early early days of ESPN and, and seeing what they were doing, you know, maybe I do broadcast journalism and it didn't work out. Uh, you know, I did do journalism for a couple of years and then realized, ah, oh, this is probably not for me, but I suppose that was, that was a bit of the dream growing up. And so then you make a pivot uh, and go to BYU and you pick uh, as a major international business. What was your kind of thinking at that time as a young adult? Yeah, yeah. So I did grow up uh, in in the church, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And and for those that grew up, especially in that era, you know, there was kind of an encouragement, almost an expectation that you would go on a mission. And so I did one of those missions. I lived uh, for two years in Italy, and I really started to get an appreciation of 
other cultures across the world and, and fortunate to have seen some of those cultures and experiences and that I suppose sparked an interest in international business and international relations. And when I came back from that mission and, you know, when really got into BYU and got into that major, you know, I thought maybe, maybe be an ambassador someday, you know, get into government and, and maybe do something like that. And, and that was my thinking at the time. And I, I just really enjoyed learning about other cultures and uh, other ways of life. Um, very proud to be in our country, of course, the United States, but was, have always been fascinated by how the world works and connects. And certainly in 2023, you know, with technology, there's there's more connection that existed back then. But uh, yeah, that always intrigued me. So you get your undergraduate at BYU, and then uh, what made you make the decision? It looks like you went right into a, an MBA program at BYU. Yeah, I did. You know, there's two schools of thought. And, uh, you know, I, I, I teach, I'm an adjunct professor uh, today in, in UMKC's uh, executive MBA program through the Block School. Uh, you know, you you wait, you go get your experience for a few years and then go go, go back and get your, your, your degree. But uh, it just felt right at the time to go in. Uh, I actually have an MPA, Master's in Public Administration. Again, I wanted to to pursue government was something as crazy as that sounds. I mean, who wants to pursue a life in government? I did. And that's why I got a master's in public administration. And while I was getting that degree and going through that program, I started to move away from maybe I don't want to work for the federal government or the state government. Let's look at local government. And I was really drawn to city management. Uh, and that is something that I pursued for a few years. Uh, once I got got my degree, uh, got married in grad school too. So my beautiful wife of 31 years, uh, Amy, we we, uh, we we tied the knot while I was in grad school as well. So yeah, so uh, you know San Fran, then you're in, uh, you go and then to Provo. Provo, yeah, Pro Provo and San Francisco are two very different places. Yeah, so then you get your first job and uh, you're working for the city of Kansas City, Missouri. And how did you migrate and get that job? Yeah. Yeah, you know, life is funny sometimes. Uh, I almost applied on a whim, you know, not, not a total whim, but they had a postgraduate internship program in the city of Kansas City. And back then in the, in the 90s, uh, that was known as one of the elite programs to get into. I think they hired three people every year to do this post MPA internship, and you'd work within the city manager's office. And at the time, the city manager of Kansas City was Larry Brown and Cleaver, Mayor Cleaver was uh, the mayor and I just I just applied I, I heard about the program I applied I got to interview got to fly out to Kansas City and interview interviews went well and was very fortunate to to get an offer and my wife and I were exploring Kansas City and it, it just felt right you know we felt the Midwest nice you hear about and met a lot of good people and decided well doesn't look like we're going back to California. We're going back to San Francisco. So let's go to Kansas City. Let's see what happens there. We thought maybe we'll just be here for a year in Kansas City. And funny how life is. We got here for a year. The city ended up offering me a permanent job as a business analyst uh, after my internship within the city manager's office. And we really did start to love Kansas City, Jeff. And I know you're a transplant as well. And it was just just felt right. We we liked the people. We liked the schools. Uh we liked the community. We liked not having traffic coming from the Bay Area. You know, we're both, yep. I initially went, met my wife in the Bay Area and we both love it there, but we really like the Kansas City way of life. So we decided to stay. We had an opportunity to go back to San Francisco after being here, uh, being in Kansas City two and a half years and uh, turned it down to then 
go to Cerner uh, to take the job at Cerner uh, and, have, and have been you know based out of Kansas City ever since. So was it difficult for you being a 49ers fan and an NFC fan, I'm assuming, <laughs> to move to an AFC city? <laughs> no, I guess I catch less grief. I do proudly wear my 49er gear, as you know, even though I've got uh, you know a royal shirt on. I wear my Giants gear. I've got my Golden State Warriors gear. I wear it proudly all over the city. Uh, and I don't get too much grief. Now, if I'm walking around with Denver Broncos or Raiders stuff, I'm probably going to get more grief, yeah, as exactly. you know. I mean, maybe you with your Jets gear. I don't know how much stick you get from the Kansas Cityans here at the AFC. But but people will mock me in a loving way, right? You, you know, Kansas City's had a lot of success, the Chiefs had in recent years, and good for them. And Mahomes is great. We, and Andy Reid's great. And Andy Reid, uh, you know, BYU guy. But uh, no, I'm I'm a proud you, – you know how it is. You don't turn your back on your the teams 100%. you rooted for when you grew up. And I will, I will forever – bleed red and gold of the 49ers and uh i proudly wear my 49er swag all over the city it's all good yeah you only catch shit if they're playing the 49er the chiefs are playing the 49ers or the jets you know yeah depending. oh yeah yeah and i don't day. know about you it's funny how many friends colleagues co-workers come out of the woodwork to try to bet you lunch or coffee or wine or whatever it is when the chiefs are playing you so yeah. um I, yeah I have lost some lunches, unfortunately, (laughs) (laughs) but I get them back with my cowboy friends. My cowboy friends always bet me and and we've had the Cowboys number in recent years. So there's that. Yeah, you sure have. So uh, what made you make the move to Cerner, which at that time was kind of the the place to work in Kansas City? Yeah. Uh, You know, it's funny. Life is funny. Sometimes you get opportunities and you you don't know what they'll be. Um, And it was happenstance. I heard about Cerner. My buddy and I were working for the city of Kansas City and full respect and admiration. And I say this sincerely. It's easy to make jokes about government workers, isn't it, Jeff? I mean, it is. people, uh, But there are, there are millions of hardworking individuals behind the scenes that aren't, you know, the ones that are on television uh, that do great work. They do. And that said, after three years of doing local government, I was not happy. I was not fulfilled. You know, you get a little older, you start to figure out what you, you know, a career is a long time. You want to be in government for your whole career. I didn't. I started to apply back in the Bay Area. Again, my wife and I talked about going back to San Francisco and then stumbled almost across this company, Cerner, which had less than 2,000 people at the time. This would have been in 1997. My buddy was taking an MBA class at night, ironically at UMKC, where I teach, and he met a director in his class in one of his his classes and she was hiring lo and behold people in operations analysts business analysts business consultants and he just simply you know there's no linkedin back then right the internet barely existed and he said can i give you my resume and the resume of my friend which was me we were both working for the city and she said sure as in fact i'm hiring two people so he gave, he had a paper copy, right? Paper, two resumes, his and mine on paper at one of his classes with Lisa Morris, her name, the amazing leader uh, that I got to work with at Cerner. And we started the interview process. Didn't know a lot about Cerner at the time, obviously tried to learn as much as I could about Cerner. And one thing led to another and lo and behold, out of the, the applicants they had, my friend and I were the two that they selected to hire for the same role. And 
a funny anecdote. I've never done this before. I'm sure this will never happen again. But they offered my friend and I the same salary, and we renegotiated. Uh, we countered together. So it's almost like stepbrothers, right? We countered our, our compensation together. We're like, well, this is great. It's a lot more than what the government pays. But let's, you know, we're, we're, we're told it's okay to counter. So we countered together and, and came to a good place, and we both started at the same time. So he and I, my good friend John, will be forever connected at the hip because we worked in the, for the city of Kansas City, Missouri together, and then we worked at Cerner for He's still there now that it's Oracle Health. But wow. That's yeah. Great. So thanks for listening. That's the story. Just happened chance that director ended up hiring us. And 22 years later, you know, I worked I worked for Cerner for 22 years across two different stints. Yeah, uh, that's I, I love that story. Uh, did you know that your friend he actually got a dollar more on salary than you did? Yeah, he probably did, and he didn't tell me. Yeah, that's pretty insane. <laughs> so, yeah, fantastic run at Cerner. I mean, that was like kind of boom years. Yeah, incredible. But you know, something you have in your, um, I think, it was your LinkedIn. But they, you know, going to it, uh, Cerner had a person centric mindset, and we're both culture junkies, all yeah. us, you know. So we love yeah. culture, and uh, so talk about that. What what yeah. made it so different? Yeah, and I really, really did love my Cerner experience. I know you can talk to some Cerner folks sometimes, and and it you know, their experience may be different, but, uh, you know, it grew rapidly, Jeff. I mean, like I said, when, when I started in 97, there was, I don't know, 1200 people, maybe something like that. And they really were drawn to the Disney model with orientation and, and uh, you know, creating these magic moments, which was an early Disney and, and Cerner had their expressions as well. Um, and culture was just a, such a huge part of the organization. And uh, former CEO, may rest in peace, Neil Patterson, was you know, establishing this culture. We had, uh, you know, the first chief people officers started to emerge and chief learning officers and really play into that. Um, but it really was an organization where, as cliche as this sounds, and I, and I know it can be cliche, where these people were like family to you. And you know, a lot, of, a lot of folks back then worked a lot of hours and you really got to know these individuals uh, quite well. But they were we were very united in trying to improve healthcare. I mean, you, you hear a lot about the why and, and purpose, uh, but we were all proud to work for a company that was having a positive impact on society, Jeff. We were and we were drawn to that and making healthcare better. Uh, and our technology was saving lives. I mean, that's it's not a stretch to say that. Uh, and, and we were drawn to that and we were united in that. And it was amazing to see the company grow like it did. You know, I think at its peak, we were about 30,000. And, you know, when you go from 1,200 to 30,000, there's all kinds of positions that need to be filled and all kinds of opportunities get created. Uh, so it was it was amazing to see people try and do different things as well and grow with the company. And if their passion was toward clients and getting out on the road going to healthcare organizations across the globe, that those opportunities existed. If their passion was to help the employees be better, those opportunities existed, you know, you name it. The All of the different organizations grew and that, that created a lot of internal movement, which was good. So Neil Patterson and Cliff Illig founded Cerner. Did that culture come from them? Yeah. Yeah, with Paul Gorp as well was the third founder. I think that the three of them founded it together. Yeah, Cliff in particular, and I should have mentioned him, uh, you know, he was really into the culture. I mean, he really drove a lot of the culture. Neil and Paul did certainly as well, but Cliff uh, thought about it in, in a different way. And, 
yeah, I think culture, you know, and I've seen this late, you know, later in my career, really does start at the top. I mean, it starts with your your leaders and the culture. You know, I'm a big believer in leaders are the ones that establish and create culture and lean into culture. And if they don't, then it ends up creating itself. But you felt a, a culture that emanated from our three founders. Uh, you really did. And, um, you know, for many years that existed up until, you know, the last few years of Cerner before it got acquired by, by Oracle. And since you had a long run there, I mean, 20 plus years, the first in about two, when you came back, what was the pivot job for you where you really yeah. got into a space and professionally where you felt like I'm, I'm, I'm making a difference? Yeah. Well, thank you for asking that question. There was a moment, Jeff, I, I, started in on operations. I was in consulting on the operations side of consulting when I joined Cerner in 97. And it was a similar role to what I had for the city of Kansas City, Missouri. And I was, I knew my way around a spreadsheet pretty well. I knew my way around PowerPoint pretty well, but that was not fulfilling to me. You know, someone who I suppose is extroverted and, you know, grew up being relatively extroverted and enjoying people and like to be around humans, you know, being buried at times for hours on end behind spreadsheets and doing macros and VLOOKUPs, you know, that wasn't my bliss. I, I, I know you well enough to know, Jeff, that's not your bliss either. And I had an opportunity to start doing a little coaching of individuals. I had an opportunity to, to, to be a manager as well and people manage for the first time. And I found that I was really drawn to helping others and where I could teach and coach. And I was drawn to presenting and leading education sessions and Cerner really encouraged, hey, if there's something, and there's a part of our culture then, if there's something you want, you're interested in, you want to try, you know, go network internally and do that. So I remember vividly uh, being bold enough to invite the chief learning officer at the time, the head of learning, uh, to lunch. I said, hey, I'd love to learn more about Cerner's learning organization. I had you know, encountered a few of the, the folks that worked in the learning organization. Uh, and it was called Cerner Virtual University. That was the name of the, the organization that was founded. And I was really drawn to the work Rob Campbell and his team were doing and was presented with an opportunity, and you'll appreciate this, Jeff, to um, interview for the business development position because Cerner was seeking to create a business called Learning Services, providing educational solutions and services to clients. So it was Moving from in-house, hey, we do a lot of things well in-house, let's provide some of these things to our clients. So I had an opportunity to work with Monique Gurman, who was a, a director, and she took me under her wing, and we helped grow, you know, I give her full credit, uh, this business, if you will, of learning services, where we are you know, setting our clients up for success by better providing them with the tools that they need to leverage and utilize certain solutions and making sure they are fully trained and uh and that was very gratifying and rewarding. And then when she she moved on, I had an opportunity to, to assume the director of learning services position. So really focused on client learning, which I loved. You know, I did that for several years, was able to work with some amazing humans as a part of that organization. And like as Cerner grew, we grew quite a bit as the demand for our services increased. And then got to move over to the, the employee side later after doing the, the client side for several years, you know, oversaw the, the employee side of learning and development for Cerner. And that was fulfilling in a different way. Um, and through that experience, got to, got to travel to, to you know, and, and have teams all across the globe. And again, as Cerner grew and just ensure that our employees 
at that point had what they needed to be successful wherever they were, whether they, whether they were at the hub in Kansas City or working somewhere else in the United States or working in some of our core offices across the globe. No, it's great. I love it. Um, yeah, I got to work for a company uh, in the, the past year, uh, Institute for Management Studies, who's in the L&D space, partnering with companies uh, like uh, Cerner and Hallmark in Kansas City and Sprint and few others. But uh, yeah, that, that L&D space, I, I just think it's, I mean, it sounds like Cerner was really, I mean, to have a chief learning officer, I mean, that's really progressive, really, you know, in that time period. I mean, it's, I think yeah. it's common now. Yeah, and I think I think Cerner was progressive too early on with the chief people officer as well. Um, there there was definitely an employee focus there for many years, and people felt that there was a lot of loyalty, rightfully so, to Cerner. Cerner had a lot of success, certainly, and I was just grateful to be a part of it. I really was, and um, you know, for me, even to this day, Jeff, there's nothing like when someone that you're able to work with gains confidence and knowledge to be more successful with their job or take that knowledge and take that confidence and take those new skills and use them even outside of their professional life. And it helps them personally. Um, that's a rush, if you will, a fulfillment that has never gone away from the, from the first time I got into learning development, which would have been about 2001, 2002, up into this day. And it's continues to have been a passion. And, and I'm grateful that my career led me along that learning and development talent path, if you will. Did you have any external outside of Cerner role models slash mentors? Not that you had to know them, you know, it could have been books, people you were emulating to learn more about the L&D space and how to teach leadership. Yeah. I mean, certainly after I got into it, I started to read a little bit more, uh, you know, once it appeared that I'm, I was going to be in this world, I remember reading, yeah, I mean, books by Dan Pink, you know, Simon Sinek emerged on the scene, so, you know, the Brene Brown, you know, people you see he pop up all the time on LinkedIn and get quoted or Instagram or Facebook. But yeah, I remember in the early days just trying to consume, I was really drawn to Pink's work. You know, he wrote a book called Drive about how people get motivated, autonomy, mastery, purpose. And I remember that was a big aha moment for me and leading my teams and my span of control and trying to, to create avenues where people, we already had the purpose. People were at Cerner because they believed that, that we were making healthcare smarter. Uh, but okay, autonomy, mastery, let, let, let's weave that into how we manage. So I, I remember doing that. Um yeah, I, again, I was drawn to cynics to start with why a lot of people were. Uh, I was drawn to emotional intelligence, Jeff, in a big way. You know, when the book Emotional Intelligence 2.0 came out, that was also a light that went on for me in terms of, you know, leaders need to start leading a little differently. The days of command and control in corporate America, the days of stick and carrot are over, and, and we've got to find better and different ways to inspire people we lead, right? And I started to observe that, you know, there were leaders that people willingly followed and they were great and their direct reports and their span of control saw something in them as a human, not just as someone with a lot of knowledge. And then there were leaders who were just followed because they had control over promotability or compensation. And I never wanted to be that leader. And I know uh, it's the same with you, Jeff, you never want to be that person. Uh, so what is it that we can do to inspire those? And I really started thinking about that and, and trying to build our team accordingly. And I remember some of the concepts from emotional intelligence 2.0 really sticking as well. And in terms of 
self-managing, being self-aware, self-managing, being socially aware, and then building relationships. Uh, and I consumed a lot of uh, books and, and TED Talks about relationship building and trust as well. And that really fueled some of my desire as well to expand my relationships and, and my trust uh, in, in, in the circles that I was in. How do you think uh, the pandemic, when it started, and even today, impacted the leadership space? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. That was, you know, that was, that's, you know, interesting time. I mean, it really did, you know, culture and leadership almost had a watershed moment, didn't it, through the pandemic. And, you know, there was a culture shift that was fired on by the pandemic, spurred on by the pandemic. And, you know, you, what I think it did more than anything else, Jeff, is it caused a lot of people to be self-reflective. What do, what do I really want out of life? Okay. How do I want to live my life? How do I want to, you know, the pandemic, it was a scary time. I and mean, people forget in the beginning, especially, no one knew where that was going to go, right? And all that self-reflection, I think, caused workers, rightfully so, to say, hey, you know, we, we, can, we can do this work thing a little differently. And companies that were able to adapt to a degree and leaders that were able to adapt, you know, had, had less issue and had leaders who were more empathetic and had more appreciation uh maybe for some of these workers that were going through some of these things you know they though i think those companies have come out of the pandemic a little better uh companies who who have tried to just do same old same old i think those are the ones that have struggled with turnover uh, but yeah you've had to adapt i mean the 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 demands have shifted where people want to go and how people want to live and what people want to do Unemployment is still, you know, three and a half percent or whatever it is. So if you want that talent and you want to keep that talent, then uh, you you need to design and develop and enhance a culture that allows people to really feel a sense of belonging and a sense of community. And uh, and that also allows them to live their life a certain way within reason, of course. Yeah, I think, you know, I worked for a company prior to the pandemic and they hated people working at home. They just thought you're not working. You're not productive. I mean, it was so nine, 80, late 80s, yeah. 90s management. I mean, it was just terrible. I mean, when I was at Sprint and uh, since it's now T-Mobile, I don't think, you know, the statute of limitations is up, but, you know, I ran, I started the kind of whole data science group and CRM and doing predictive modeling to, you know, drive marketing and sales return on investment. You know, and you couldn't even find data scientists, at least that I knew of. And, you know, I was just getting IT guys, uh, people that were smart and that could think outside the box. And I had people working at home in 1991. The Sprint didn't even have a policy. Wow. I was like, hey, you, we, you can log in at home and do and code. <laughs> You know, somebody's daughter would be sick. The wife was traveling. I'm like, work from home. You know, yeah. you know, it just didn't make sense. You know, just do the work, right? And people, yeah. you know, people are appreciative. Then they work harder because you know they they feel that they're yeah. cared for, right? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, and it, it, you know, as cliche as that sounds, I mean, that's still the case. I think companies that that do put their employees first, uh, they, you know, the servant leadership thing works. And if employees feel like their companies are trying to serve them and take care of them, then it does inspire loyalty. And we see companies that still exist like that today. It's what we try to do at my current company at Spotlight. You know, and and when you have that loyalty, then people are are going to 
be diligent and, and work hard for clients. They're going to work hard for each other. You, you know, that, that law of reciprocity kicks in, if you will. Uh, and I think companies that understand that are the ones that are, you know, more successful. Work from home is starting to shift. I mean, just this week I read Zoom is ironically bringing people back into the office two days a week, people that work for the company Zoom, which is interesting to me. I, I don't so I don't know where this will go. You know, the pendulum is switching back. But I think companies that are successfully managing this hybrid concept, I think I think those are the ones that are, you know, at least at least for now, are going to attract more more employees. Uh, it remains to be seen. Uh, I enjoy coming to the office every day, but that's just me. I enjoy it. But there are people that don't, and and uh, you know, do we have a place for them? Hopefully, we do. One one more thing though, Jeff, I, I think this is worth pointing out. Where we have to be careful, and there's enough data on this now. Early career employees who are working from home full time, who've never been in an office, many of them are struggling. And you've probably read some of the same things I've read. They are feeling isolation. They are feeling depression. Uh, I, I saw a survey recently where 52% of Gen Zs who are working 100% from home, right? These are not hybrid, 100% from home. 52% feel some sort of isolation or depression or, or some sort of mental uh, unwellness, if you will, however you want to put that. So we have to ensure, we have to watch out for that. You know, you and I, we've had our decades of office life. We understand what that's like, but people who've never experienced that, if they're working from home exclusively right out of school and they've gone from a healthy you know, sorority, fraternity life, social life into immediate, no, you're going to work from your apartment or your parents' basement or if you're fortunate to have a home, whatever it is, that's having a negative effect on that generation. And they're not developing and they're not getting as many opportunities from a career progression perspective. There's enough data on that already to see that and survey. Um, so we're, we're addressing that a bit uh, at Spotlight as well. We don't want anybody to get left behind. We want to make sure that uh, you know they do have opportunities and access to their manager and their peers real time, not just through Zoom. So that's just something else to consider as the world continues to evolve and, and work and life continue to evolve. Yeah, I'm I, I'm so intrigued about the model. What is the best model for, you know, the future of work or, you know, how to work now? Because I think there's, you said it about the Gen Zers who, you know, went right from college into, a, you know, 100% remote. Yeah. I saw it a little bit with, uh, uh, I was lucky enough to teach at uh, University of Kansas in the undergraduate business program this past January through May. And what I noticed was that um, they started their college career via Zoom. So their social skills were, you know, it was, they were, you know, yeah. more isolated, more withdrawn. And I think students are like that, you know, to get them to, you have more teaching experience than me, but, you know, to get 19 to 21 year olds to participate in anything is hard. But, uh, and I, but, and that, you know, so it's that group that, that you mentioned, as well as I think, it's very important for new employees, right? That come in from no matter what their experience in work is that you, cause you have to teach them about the culture. What is the culture yeah. of Spotlight yeah. or Cerner or T-Mobile, yeah. right? So I think yeah. that, you know, so I'm just really intrigued and people need to be with each other because it's not, you know, you bring people together and it's not the meeting that they're in that talks about, or oh, how we're going to launch this product or whatever. It's, 
it's the conversation when you bring people together and you take them out to dinner and those yes. dinner conversations and that's yes. when you build the relationships for the most part i mean yeah and i know we'll, we'll you know we may talk about culture later but but we have shifted and i think probably by the time this podcast goes live uh you know we we are now moving toward if you are an early career new hire right out of school we want you in the office at least three days a week, you know, and everybody's here for onboarding, regardless of their role, regardless of their age, where they're at in life. And we have a pretty robust onboarding, more than most companies, uh, 90 days. And uh, you have to be in the office every day for that. So you can absorb the culture and you can be around your, again, peers and managers and learn. But even after that, now with what we've seen, and we've seen it looking internally as well, uh, you know, we're going to have our early career professionals, our new hires, not our existing hires, the new ones, the ones we are now hiring going forward, spend at least three days in the, a week in the office. We're going to mandate that for the first year. Not because it's not punitive. It's because we do care about these humans mm -hmm. and we want them. We want to set them up for success. We want to give them access, easy access to knowledge and education and peer support and manager support. And, uh, because of what's been happening in the world. And, and again, we've seen it internally as well. Uh, you know, we want to set these young professionals up for success and being around others uh, is, a, is a way to do that in an office environment. And then after a year, we'll see, the manager will have a conversation. And if, if that young professional wants to work a little more from home, there'll be a conversation. There's not a guarantee, but there'll be a conversation about that, but a minimum three days a week for the first year. Yeah, and I think your spotlight's allowed to, I mean, can do that because you have so many, you have 85% of the Kansas City-based people coming to work. Yeah. So that's the culture's there. Now, yeah. if you had 25%, it's probably not a good yeah. policy, right? Because they're going to come in, why am I here? Yeah. Some days there's, you know, 10, you know, I think you have 150, yeah. 100. No, you're spot on. Uh, you know, we only have about 11% of our work, our Kansas City-based workforce works from home. Uh most almost all the time. So 89% is at least in the office two to three days a week. Yeah. And, uh, and of the 89%, I want to say 40% are there four to five days a week. So yeah, on any given day, it's, it's roughly over 80%. But uh, yeah, you're right. It doesn't work if your manager's not there. It doesn't work if your teammates are not there. It doesn't work if only young professionals are in the office. Right. You, you, are, you are correct. And again, I'm grateful to work for a company where People want to come to work. We have such a, a good, healthy environment in the two buildings down in the crossroads that, and people is they enjoy being around each other. And you know, part of that starts with the the people you hire and, and hiring not just for skill set but hiring for um, values. And I don't like to use the word fit necessarily, but uh, yeah, we we're grateful that that our humans like each other. You know, we all like each other. Uh, whether we're cowboy fans or 49er fans or chiefs fans or anything in between, we all, we all get along well. And there you go. it's a, it's a great group of humans. So, and again, in some ways it reminded me of the early years of Cerner uh, in terms of the energy, uh, you know, the company I'm at now been up and running for 11, 12 years. And, uh, you know, Cerner was, was a little, not that much, but a little older. Yeah. I was a little older when I started there, but you could kind of feel that, that energy that, that comes from people, being on the same page and getting along with each other. It's a, it's a very rewarding feeling. 
So two things that you said, I want to just unpack a little bit more. So the three days a week, the new hires come in, it's, there's certain, they can't pick the days. It's going to be whatever. Yeah. They'll discuss with their manager. I think the, the manager will work with them to figure out what works best. I mean, we'd like to give them actually some say in that if we can, you know, if they're better Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Now there are some things we, we want all of our employees in the office for obviously company meetings, but a team meeting, right? The, if the manager's holding a team meeting and the employees are Kansas City based, and we do have a few virtual employees that live outside of Kansas City, but most live in Kansas City. You know, something like that, we'd want the early career professional to be in the office that day of the team meeting. So there'll, there'll be a big client meeting that they're on the client team. And there's a, a really important Zoom call with, you know, we work with some of the biggest tech companies in the world, smaller ones as well. Uh, you know, where we, we want to have everybody in the room together facing the camera, something like that. We would say, okay, for this week, we've got this big call coming up with this client. Let's make sure you're here. So you have this great run 20 years at Cerner. What made you go to another iconic company in Kansas City, AMC Theaters? I didn't leave Cerner. You know, sometimes people leave companies because they're frustrated or unfulfilled. I loved Cerner, Jeff. I mean, I really did. And I was not unhappy when I left. But, you know, sometimes opportunity knocks and, uh, you know, through through a series of events, I found out about this, this position was approached about this position over at AMC, uh, Vice President of Opportunity. And I'm a movie junkie. You know, I always have been. You know, when I started my career, I went to Little Skyline College in the Bay Area for a couple of years and did journalism and, and you know, thought, thought I would be a, a sports journalist. But I, I also was the movie critic. I grew up a, a movie kid. One of my favorite memories, I didn't mention this earlier, growing up in the Bay Area was going to the movies with dad. I mean, that was our thing. We'd go watch dubbed Kung Fu movies, Bruce Lee movies before anybody even know who Bruce Lee was when I was a kid. You know, we'd go downtown San Francisco, all these different theaters. And that was our thing. You know, dad and I would do sports, but we also did movies and we loved the theater. So, you know, when I had an opportunity to go, as you said, one of the true pristine well-known company across the globe at AMC. And, and I don't know if you've had these reflections, Jeff. You know, by that point, it's like, well, if I'm ever going to do a career shift, now's the time. I'm not getting any younger. So if I'm going to try something new, I've learned since then, maybe I wasn't as old as I thought I was, right? <laughs> but if I'm going to try something new, now's the time. And so I took a chance, you know, and uh, was there a year and, uh, you know, it didn't work out and uh, ended up going back to Cerner after being at AMC, where I felt comfortable, had an opportunity to do some different things when I came back to Cerner the second time, some cool and exciting things working with the VA and the DOD. I mean, you learn from every experience, right, Jeff? And I certainly learned from my experiences at AMC. And looking back, I wasn't grateful that it was something I tried to pursue. Obviously, you can see what happened to the movie business the last five, six years. Uh, I don't. I certainly don't wish them ill. Uh, and I think there's still magic at the movies, and movies have rebounded a little bit in the last month or so. We'll see. We'll see what the future holds for. Actually, AMC had their best week ever with Barbie yeah. and uh, yeah. What do they call it? Bar Barbenheimer, right? Barbenheimer, right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, you you've gone out and seen Barbie a couple of times, haven't you, Jeff? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> uh, so, uh, just quick favorite sports movie. 
Oh God, that's like picking a favorite kid. Come on. All right, just two, three, whatever. All right. Uh, no, there's a lot. God, uh, this is you know this is going to reflect my age. The the OG longest yard. Do you remember that? Oh yeah, Burt Reynolds. Yeah, yeah, yeah with Burt Reynolds. I re yeah. I remember just laughing hysterically seeing that. Uh, Rocky, I was drawn to. You know, yeah. as a, as a, you know when you're a kid, yeah. you see that. You're like, oh my God, I could be Rocky. Yeah. Uh, Push ups. After you chariots of fire again, I was a track guy. Us track right. guys, there's not, there's not a lot of track movies, Jeff. Yeah, the slow right. motion running, <laughs> right? There's not a lot of track movies, Jeff. So, chariots of fire was one, you know. I, I ran track Love for it. a couple years at, at Skyline, yeah. and uh, I'll give you one more if it qualifies as a sports movie The Big Lebowski, right? Bowling. Oh, yeah, there so, you go. So, the thing I did mention to you earlier, I grew up in a you know, my father, movies, right? Uh, sports, but. We bowled, you know, I come, my father was, uh, you know, an amazing human construction worker, sheet metal worker, and we played cards and we bowled because that's what you do in construction worker households. And so I bowled for 40 years of my life, for God's sake, and uh, the big Lebowski. So if that counts right. as a sports movie. I'm going with that. All right. Two quick questions on bowling. Do you have your own ball? <laughs> I have about 25 bowling balls still. <laughs> my wife is... My wife's like, when are you going to throw these damn bowling balls away? You don't ball. You want because I took up disc golf eleven years ago. Oh, that's not stopped playing it since I discovered that sport. But I still have all my bowling balls. True yeah. story. Uh, you, I don't think even you knew this, Jeff. I did bowl for BYU. It was a club sport. It wasn't, you know, a wow. team. It wasn't. A, yeah, but it was a club sport. But for two years, you know, threw threw all the bowling balls in the car and you know drove around and. Did bowling tournaments in Vegas and exotic locations like Mesquite, Nevada, you know, and uh, nice. Yeah, Salt Lake nice. City. So, yes, yeah, so I still have about 25 bowling balls sitting in the garage that aren't used. I love it. Love it. How uh, highest bowling score? I do have a few 300s. Oh, there we go. Perfect. Yeah, not, not, not to brag. I'm, I'm not. But uh, yeah, when you bowl for 40 years, hopefully you have a few 300s. <laughs> yeah, I would think. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Love it. Um, God, there's so many things I want to ask you. Uh, so what, I mean, so you worked at Cerner, great culture, you yeah. know, you know what you talked about. So kind of, you know, and then really that was your, your only job. I mean, you're, you're obviously the city of Kansas City in your first couple of years out of, out of uh, getting your graduate degree. But what was the big difference of the AMC culture? And why do you think it was different than Cerner? Well, AMC certainly had been around longer and was more established. I'll say, you know, the the movie culture, the entertainment culture, and certainly movie theaters is different than, than what goes on in Hollywood. It, it, you know, Cerner, even with as big as it got, still felt like a family, you know, even when it got to 30,000, especially among people who were there early on, you, you still felt that. You felt a connectedness. You know, AMC, while they, there's a core headquarters in Leewood and you've got several hundred people there, you know, people working in the theaters are all over the all over the globe. So the, the, those that are working in the theater. So it's it's more disconnected. I mean, it's it's harder to, you know, to embrace, to, to create a culture when you have people literally in every major city in the United States. And that's where they live and they work in that local theater. And yes, you bring your you bring individuals back to back to Leewood for for some training and a culture dip, um, but that's a harder environment, right? To create a consistent culture because right. you've got hundreds of theaters that may operate differently 
Cerner still felt connected, even with employees living all over the globe. Yeah, another another point about that. So you you know you're at Cerner, you're doing all these great L and D initiatives, but you're basically working with professional people, college graduates. Now you've got thirty thousand people. You're you're L and D, and you got you need the manager of the you know the you know, the concession stand and the ticket taker. So there are different types. Of, so what was your biggest challenge or surprise going to that environment from Cerner? Yeah. And, and again, that's not to diminish anything. You're right, though. They're, they're hourly workers. You, you and at Cerner had very few hourly workers. It's a, it was a professional workforce. Most people were degreed for, for better, for worse. Uh, and then you're going to an environment where you, you've got a lot of a lot of people who, who are hourly. And again, a lot of them wonderful humans. Uh, it doesn't doesn't mean they're, you know, just because they don't have a degree. But but it is different. You're right. And you're and from a learning and development perspective, you're thinking about things like, you know, AMC cleanliness in the theater. How do we create a culture where we want to keep it, you know, very clean and creating a culture where the popcorn is fresh all the time, creating a culture where where people are engaging with the moviegoers and creating an uncommon environment where people want to go to AMC versus a Regal or a Cinemark. Uh, you know, you, you have to think about L&D in a completely different way in terms of uh, where you want the culture of that of those theaters to go, uh, so so it it did require a shift in thinking uh, and mindset in how we trained and uh, and how to get that to stick, how to get those concepts to stick. Uh, so yes, that was it was very different from teaching our Cerner's professionals how to interact with nurses and doctors and all kinds of healthcare professionals and other types of clinicians and administrate versus creating a culture where um, AMC's staff would effectively interact with moviegoers and would create a building that really shone through and became a desirable location for people to go to. So those healthcare and movies are very, very different things. So in 2014, you start becoming a leadership coach in the Block Executive Education Program. And in 2016, you're a junk professor in the Executive MBA Program at UMKC, University of Missouri, Kansas City. And you're also doing speaking engagements. And I don't know when you started that, but how do you manage your time between kind of your corporate job and doing these things on the side, side hustle, side gigs, whatever you want? Yeah, well, my first love and respect is to Spotlight, and I, and I always want to make sure I honor the opportunity I have at Spotlight. I've been there now for just over two years, and I ensure that, you know, I put in an honest week, if, if whatever it is. And, you know, I'm grateful that I, I can do a little bit of side work, but I keep it to a minimum as best I can. When I'm coaching, I usually limit myself to no more than coaching three individuals at a time. So I've been fortunate to be an executive coach for several years and I limit myself to three, but you know, we meet over lunch, we meet over coffee. So it doesn't interfere with the day job too much. My wife will tell you, I work at night and on the weekends far too often. And that's the time I reserve for leadership development sessions that I might be creating for companies or developing a, a, a speech that I'm going to give. And then I, I teach one semester a year, which is plenty, which I love. Uh, I teach a course on talent management, uh, as you indicated, in the executive MBA program at UMKC. 
but those are all on Saturdays. So that doesn't interfere the work week. It's six Saturdays in the fall, six four-hour blocks of time. I think there's one other afternoon midweek. So it's six Saturdays plus one random Wednesday afternoon, something like that. You know, there's grading papers at nights and on the weekends. And I love all, I love everything I do. I love all the opportunities. But the side hustle stuff that comes along when it gets too much, I'm, I'm fortunate to have a, a very wonderful community of friends and colleagues who I trust that I try to introduced to clients when, uh, you know, when it does interfere too much with my, my personal life with my, again, my lovely wife and, and my three adult children or my spotlight life. And, and that does happen. And so I turn that work away and I try to introduce um, other people to those opportunities. Spotlight AR, one of the best companies to work for both the Kansas City Business Journal and Ingram's, um, you know, which is phenomenal. I mean, but what do you, I mean, what's, if I mean, there's no magic bullet, but what, I mean, from a culture perspective and, you know, two, uh, my favorite culture quote uh, was Peter Drucker's culture eat strategy for breakfast. Yeah. Love that quote. I actually worked at a company that had that posted in the, in the, uh, where the coffee was, the break room. And it was one of the worst culture. <laughs> so I, 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 every time I got coffee, I, I would laugh, but uh, a new quote that, that came from Seth Godin's in uh, this is uh, in his book, uh, this is marketing culture beats strategy so much that culture is strategy. So th oh, wow. that one, that one has become a, a new That's favorite, a good one. So, but yeah, but I just, you know, just kind of your, your philosophy about it and how does a great culture begin and, and, and remain. Yeah, I think about this a lot. I suppose it's in my title uh, at Spotlight, uh, you know, Vice President of Talent and Culture. And I'm grateful that when I was introduced, I, I actually first was introduced to Spotlight as a coach. And I was grateful to coach a couple of the leaders there before I started. And uh, I had tried to retire, actually, uh, you know, from Cerner. So the second time I left Cerner, I retired. And, uh, you know, I was just doing the stuff on the side. I was teaching and coaching and leadership development sessions and public speaking. And it was great. But one particular company I was drawn to was Spotlight. As I, as I was able to learn more about the company and coach a couple of their leaders, I was drawn to their culture. And they were only 80, 90 people at the time. One building in, in the crossroads, beautiful building. And I was drawn to the CEO's philosophy. And I know this is a podcast where we can curse uh, and he wouldn't mind, he would not mind me cursing. But he said, Mike, you know, when I started there, he's like, I want, I need you. I want you to help reinforce and permeate our no asshole philosophy. If you know anything, and I know you're a big sports guy, you know, the New Zealand's rugby team has a similar philosophy. And one of the, the all blacks, and one of the reasons they're so successful is because they, you know, there's plenty of big, strong rugby athletes running around in New Zealand, but when they have an asshole or a jerk, they use a different term that I won't use. They weed those people off the team because they know the importance of being united. And you can certainly read more about that on the internet. But, uh, you know, at Spotlight, we do. We, it's one thing to say you have a no asshole policy, right? Because companies can say that we have a no jerk policy, but we actually do implement that and live that. And I've been grateful to working with the team, you know, establish leadership development programs where we do talk about servant leadership heavy. We do talk about emotional intelligence heavy. We talk about transparency and feedback and empathy and things like that. And our employees are drawn to that. They're drawn to that in our leaders and they're drawn to that in the company, but it has to start at the top and it starts with Rick, our CEO. And when we have an asshole appear, 
we do something about it, Jeff. We will try to coach that person. Sure, we do. We want to give grace. Everybody has a bad moment. Maybe it's a bad moment. But if it's a theme, then spotlight is not the place for them. They're not going to thrive. If they're cranky, angry, assholery, and that's their life and that's who they are, then spotlight's not going to be the place for them, Jeff. It's not. And uh, it's not fair to them to work for us. And it's certainly not fair for the other 150 people that we have today to be around that individual. So we do manage out those types of individuals. We are very picky and determined in the hiring process and thorough, but sometimes people slip through the cracks, Jeff. You know, you there are people who are professional interviewers that do it very well and they come across a certain way and then they get into the company and you see that maybe there's someone different. That doesn't happen very often, but when it does, we do something about it. Hence, we have many amazing, wonderful leaders at Spotlight, many of which have been promoted from within. We're at a point now where you know, 40% of our workforce is in their 20s, and a lot of these, these people have risen up, and they're amazing humans and amazing young professionals and leaders, and, and they are leading the right way, I would say. They are leading uh, with a service mentality. Um, and then the last thing I say, I'll, I'll say on that, we're, we're a company that lives our four core values. Some companies just put their values, they put a nice little frame about it, and they put it up on the on a wall in the kitchen. This is who we are. And, you know, it's on their website. But how many companies, Jeff, actually live those core values? In the early years of Cerner, we certainly did. You know, got a little trickier as Cerner got bigger. But we have four values that we live, that we preach, and they are a condition of promotion, just like your skill is. And you can be, you can have a great skill set. But if you don't live our four core values, which is being persistent, persistent to each other, as well as our clients, which is being honorable, which is being collaborative. And then our last one we stole from Seinfeld, which is a word called Kavorka. I don't know if you were a Seinfeld watcher, but we, we took that word and twisted a little bit. Just be the kind of person that others want to be around. It doesn't matter if you're an introvert, extrovert, or anybody in between. Be the type of individual that others want to be around. You know, Jeff, we've had a few interactions. I enjoy spending time with you. You know, we, we have a connection. And the best leaders can have that connection across all demographics, right? They connect at a human-human level with their clients, of course. But with Gen Z, with Millennial, with Gen X, Boomers, everybody in between, they can connect with humans from all walks of life. Humans who grew up on a farm in Kansas, humans who grew up in Kansas City, humans who come from blue-collar families, white-collar families, whatever it is. Um, and we try to teach our leaders to do that. And we look to hire people that can do that. And that's about Kavorka, right? Be the person that others want to be around. Yeah. And we use those core values to make promotion decisions, Jeff. So that's how we keep our culture. And yes, of course, the work matters. Of course, your skills matter can't get where maybe you want to be at spotlight if you can't abide by our four core values, if you're not that kind of human. Um, so that's, I think, more than anything else. And, and we reinforce our culture constantly through leadership development programs. We now have a program for emerging leaders, new managers, and, and experienced leaders. And we reinforce our culture points consistently throughout all three of these programs. They certainly get it right out of the gate when they start through onboarding, but yeah, I mean, we're, we're and, and the last thing I'll say on culture, as you can see, I could talk for hours. We're also the rare company, at least in my experiences, that really does listen to its employees. You know, we've got a lot of different committees cutting across a lot of different segments of our employee population. But you know what? We take that feedback. We design policy based on a lot of that feedback. 
We have a BIPOC committee, LGBTQ plus committee. We've got a community enrichment team. We've got a fun committee. We've got an early career committee. And everybody is involved in something, Jeff. The 150 of us are all involved in something, whether it's a community garden or whether it's working with girls on the run and giving back to the community that way, um, you know, whether it's hosting LGBTQ organizations at Spotlight, everybody's got something that we're involved in and we, and, and we respect every, every walk of life. We preach that. And again, for those that can't do that, they can't work for Spotlight. I've hired, I think uh, it's over 300 people over the course of my career. And as you say, we get fooled, you know, uh, I, I have a pretty good track record, but yeah, we've all gotten fooled. And I know there's no magic one question uh, in terms of interviewing, but w if you had to say one question, if you only got one question with a candidate and you had to make a decision on that one question, do you have one? Ooh, a magic question for a candidate? I have to think about that. Yeah, you only get one question and you have to make a decision to hire or not hire. What um, what would that question be? For me personally and our talent acquisition manager who's amazing and better at these things than I am. I, but I would say, you know, and, when I, and I still dip into interviewing every now and then, not very often for Spotlight, but I, but I have. Tell me how you personally seek to form trusting relationships in your life and then let them go. If I could ask one question, and then, and then it's not just about the words, Jeff. It's about their body language. It's about their tone. Are they sincere? Mm -hmm. Are they authentic? Are they going for behavioral interviewing techniques and reading from a script in their brain? Right. Yeah. Right. I, I want an authentic response to how do you build trusting relationships? That's another core tenant of Spotlight. Mm -hmm. um, trust. Do I trust this person? And that's a huge thing for us. So evaluating that in the interview process is very important as best we can. Well, you know what? We're also the company that will call references. We're also the company that looks at all the social media. Um, not all companies do that to, right. to, to see if we can trust this person. And again, sure. you still get fooled. We're pretty good, but just like anybody, you get fooled. Sure. But I think that more than anything, you know, nobody knows what we do, Jeff. I know you and I haven't even talked about it. I know you've researched Spotlight, but we're a very unique company, this concept of analyst relations and working with tech and services companies to create productive relationships with these analysts, you know, like Gardner Forrester, IDC, elsewhere. We don't, nobody brings that to spotlight. There's no degree in analyst relations at any university. Right. But we, yeah, we want smart people. But we need people who are going to live our core values because it works. We need people who are going to get along with all walks of life. And we need people who can build trust and can be trusted. If you can do those things, and yeah, I suppose if you have a little bit of a tech aptitude, but if you can do those things and keep yourself organized, you can be very successful at Spotlight. In a culture that welcomes everyone, in a culture that is a fun place to work. Hell, we do fantasy football every year and more than half our company participates. How crazy is that? Wow, that's great. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it's just, I hope, I know we're going to continue to grow and I'll probably be long retired and this company will still continue to progress. My hope is the the love for each other and the love to hang out with each other and, and, and do all the fun things we do in a respectful way continues on and carries on. Because ultimately at the end of the day, culture's about can you get people to feel something as they get up to work every day, whether they're zooming in or whether they're going into a build, building. And that's what I think about and others think about all the time. How can we get our employees to feel fulfillment and desire 
to go into an office. Right. And we seem to have done pretty well with that. And, uh, you know, much credit to the people before me who, who established our values and, and, uh, and the no asshole policy. And right. Our goal is to carry that on, Jeff. Mike, there's two groups of people I love to help with advice from great leaders like yourself. And I'm very uh, curious about your answers to both these questions. So the first group is a recent college graduate. They're getting ready to start the professional job. And, you know, there's great universities out there and colleges, but and they teach how to get a degree. But, you know, the majority of them don't really teach how to get a a job and a good job. And uh, what advice would you have for somebody graduating from college? In, in, in terms of pursuing their first professional job? I'm glad you asked that. That is a topic I'm passionate about. So two things. Number one, control your personal brand and, and understand how important that is. I just mentioned, you know, we're not the only company that does this. We we have, uh, you know, we have a very talented HR professional in talent acquisition who scours, who scours the internet. And if your brand on the internet is even somewhat risky versus our core values, then we're not going to look at you. So make sure the internet is a reflection of who the best version of yourself. And by that, I'm talking TikTok, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, whatever media platforms you utilize. Uh, And you don't need me telling you what to have out there. I mean, there's articles for days on that sort of thing. I mean, young professionals can look that up, but we do look at that. Uh, Make sure your references are in order. We, We will do that as well. But the other thing beyond personal brand and owning that and, and again, understanding what you want and how you want to how you want to be seen by the world and then living that right, not just talking it, living it. And here's another cliche, but it is still true. I would argue, Jeff, it is even more true in 2023 than it was when you and I were getting it. Your network is your net worth. And I was taught that 30 years ago by uh, one of my early leaders, and that has always stuck with me. Your network is your net worth. And it's never too early, Jeff, to get out and meet interesting people like you (laughs) and others. It's never too late, and it's never too early. I love it, Jeff, and I'm sure you do as well, when a college student says, finds me on LinkedIn and says, Mike, you know, you have an interesting background, or I saw you speak, or I'm a UMKC student, and I know you're a professor there. Can I buy you a cup of coffee? I'm never going to turn down that individual right. ever, ever. And of course I'm going to buy them the coffee. Right. Right. And right. I've seen this consistently college graduates, especially if they've started their junior senior years who are meeting professionals, getting internships if they can. Sure. But networking and meeting professionals, they're getting ahead. There's no shame in meeting professionals and asking them for advice. It's a great thing and it's a good thing. Now, what you don't wanna do is just be a taker as a 19, 20, 21 year old. And I'm not gonna call anybody out, but I, you, know, you don't wanna be two minutes into a cup of coffee saying, can you hire me? That's not what networking is, right? Okay. And, and new grads have much more to give back than sometimes they even realize. And, and they can give to my generation and generations uh, that are younger than mine. And I like those students, those graduates or those students who, who seek to give, who seek to serve first before they ask for anything. And they do it in a genuine, authentic way. So that, you know, I, I preach this to my kids. I have three Gen Z kids, Jeff. I have three kids in their 20s. They're all productive adults. Meet people, meet interesting people. Don't ask for anything. Learn from them. Get their advice. 
you do enough of that and your brand is on point, you're going to get hired. In fact, you're going to get multiple offers, especially in today's world where the unemployment rate is as low as it is. Uh Then lastly, just don't be afraid to evolve. I mean, AI is changing things practically by the minute. You know, don't, don't be afraid to do different things and don't assume your career today is going to be what your career is 10 years. Be flexible, be able to evolve. Companies ultimately die if they don't evolve. We know that. We've seen that. Uh, but sort of leaders, Jeff, and it, mm-hmm. leaders who try to lead today like they led in the aughts, they're not successful. You have to evolve with with where societal norms are, technology norms are. So I would I also tell students be be prepared to evolve. Don't don't change your core values. That's what I'm talking about, right? But evolve your skill set. Sure. Yeah, great advice. The second group, uh, I, I, I believe you'll be passionate about this also is, so, you know, you basically start your career, you're an individual contributor, then you get that promotion. Now you're in charge of a team and you're now you know, a manager or whatever the title is. So what, what advice would you give that group of people as they begin their leadership journey? Yeah, brand new managers. I, yeah, I, I give what I just gave to my daughter who became a first-time manager and is managing people now for the first time. She works, uh, very proud of her, works for corporate Walmart. Uh, service, I am a big believer in servant leadership. And when I am not selfish, and everybody gets selfish at some point, but when I'm able to leave my ego aside and serve others, especially direct reports, I have found that the law of reciprocity kicks in. And I think, and, and, and they want to do their best work, you know, and I think about the leaders I've had. And if you think about the leaders you've had, Jeff, the, the, the men and women that I've wanted to run through walls for in the past, in my 30 plus years of work, and they were the ones that took an interest in me as a human. They served me. They tried to help me. They were honest with me, transparent. They presented me with learning opportunities to grow. They championed me. And I wanted to do anything for them to, to prove their trust in me. Uh, so what I try to tell two managers is, is, is serve the people that report up through you, check your ego at the door, learn from them as much as they're going to learn from you. And uh, you cannot walk through life ever with an aura that you're better than anybody else. And those young leaders that are doing that, they are, I've seen, you know, they're finding success and they're continuing to rise up. Yeah, Mike, uh, I could do a Tim Ferriss podcast and do long form and we can go, you know, another hour or two, but I'm going to end it. Uh, I so love talking to you. Um, Yeah, thank you for coming on the podcast today. You're phenomenal. Well, I appreciate you, Jeff. I I, uh, like I said, I'm not just saying this because it's your podcast, but uh, I appreciate what you're doing in the community. I'm drawn to you as a human. I appreciate your positive energy and and your leadership philosophy. And again, we've talked over coffee as well uh, and the great work you're doing and keep getting after it, my friend, keep, keep preaching the good stuff. Uh, there are many people who, who will yet learn from you and uh, I'm excited uh, with what you're doing with this new chapter in your life. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Mike. Have a great day. Yeah, thank you. 
I could talk to Mike Allison for hours. Uh, and what I really loved about the episode, besides a few things I'll discuss here, is that Jeter, my two-year-old ultra mini golden doodle yeah. named for uh, Derek Jeter, made an appearance. Uh, so that barking. Uh, he did. Yeah, so that was good. And so right. I, I, I hope everybody noticed it and took note of the fact there's no way I could edit that out. <laughs> Joe's the best, but, you know, it is what it is. But I told him that that may happen during some of these recordings. But uh, anyhow, back to Mike and, and the conversation. I, what, the, a couple things for me is he works for Spotlight AR, and you can tell a lot about what a company thinks about culture by – how they discuss things and titles. So Mike's title is VP of Culture and Talent Development, two of my favorite topics professionally. Mm -hmm. And I think that means a lot when you're actually putting someone in charge of the culture. I mean, and, everybody and, and, owns and you put it on a, And you put it on a VP level. He's not the director yeah. of or the manager of, you know. Right. And, you know, second, you know, the no asshole policy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, they're going to get rid of people that are, cancer to the culture because they want to protect it and it's amazing really uh, i forget how many people he said actually uh, live in the kansas city metro area but they have a flexible work from home work from office policy and 85 percent of the kansas city employees come into the office which is a, is a testament to their culture yeah. i i think yeah so any takeaways for you, Joe? What did you Yeah, think? well, the first thing I, I'll say with a little bit of jealousy in my heart that somebody like Mike can say, oh, yeah, I'm a bowler, and oh, yeah, I've got a few 300 scores. You know, and I thought a few 300 scores. You know, that, this is coming from me, somebody that struggles to break into triple digits every time I go bowling. Yeah, I've seen Joe bowl. We've been on various uh, team outings, uh, team building bowling sessions, and I could attest to the fact that, you know, getting to the triple digits sometimes getting, can be a struck for Joe. Getting, sometimes for me also. <laughs> but getting 12 strikes in a row is, is just is just mind-blowing to me. You know, that's even a bigger deal to me than a hole-in-one, I think, in golf. And I, I don't know... I don't know that maybe it's because I don't play golf and I don't understand exactly what it's like, but but I, I don't want to dwell on that. I just thought that that was interesting that he that he passed that off so casually. Um, you and Mike talked for a while about the pandemic and about the role that the pandemic has played uh, on business culture, and I am a firm believer that I believe that just like a national history or I mean world history is is uh, split into pre-World War and post-World War and pre-9-11 and post-9-11. World history is going to be split between pre-pandemic and post-pandemic. I'm, I'm sure it is on a variety of different levels. But one of them is what it's doing to the work culture because, it, it, because it's going in a pendulum. There's, there, was a, there was a time right at the beginning of the pandemic when there was a sudden revelation. Oh my gosh, it's it's okay for everybody to work at home. Everybody work at home, and we, you know nobody's ever going to go in the office again. And then all of a sudden, some companies have started backpedaling on that, and they they start saying, Oh well, no, we want you to come in, you know, a day or two a week or something like that. And what that is is that pendulum settling somewhere in the middle because the true answer is not everybody work from home all the time. But the true answer is not everybody work 
and the office all the time. It's somewhere in the middle. And that thing in the middle is going to be different from one person to another. It's going to be different from one company to another. And I think it's going to take us a couple of years for that pendulum to finally settle into what, uh, what is the optimal place. And I, I just think that's an interesting concept to, to discuss. Yeah, I totally agree. It's, it's going to be to see where we're going to end up with that. It, it, it will be fascinating, honestly. I'm, I'm so intrigued by it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so based on Mike's conversation, um, what leadership advice would you want to impart on our uh, great listeners? Uh, today, we're going to go back to that great philosophy, Sheldon Cooper, who one time said, ignoring things that irritate me is not my strong suit. Obsessively fixating on them Now that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Corporate Couch. If you enjoy the podcast, I would love for you to take two minutes out of your day to rate us five stars and write a review. Please join me next week to learn from another great leader sharing their professional journey and insights.